0: Bathe my window, make it flow, melt it as the ice will go, melt the glass and leave the sticks like a hermit's crucifix, burst into my narrow stall, swing the picture on the wall, run the rattling pages over, scatter poems on the floor, turn the poet out of door. Robert Frost, To the Thawing Wind. I was about to read... Like at the end of this one, it has Robert Frost's uh, birth and date, like 1874 to 1963. It's <laughs> I part thought that of the was poem. like the poem's length. I was like, what? And I was like, oh, that's his birthday.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Chris uh, taps on Robert Frost multiple times in this series. Uh, I don't know if like, not necessarily saying that episodes will start with a Robert Frost poem. I'm sure though... I'm sure this might not be the only one that that starts with Robert Frost, but it's uh, definitely not, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I think just throughout you know, in the midst of episodes, he'll reference uh, Robert Frost or say like a line from a poem uh, but the um the sort of k bear address that Chris is doing here now is in. I guess, sort of celebration of spring. He says, spring has sprung. And we get uh, this wonderful, like, jazz music uh, on top of footage of ice melting and rivers flowing. And uh, very reminiscent of, like, spring break. Do you remember that episode in season two when the ice was melting?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that that's playing into a lot of things right here. Uh, I like how it shows like a picture of a beaver. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Is the beavers like making a a dam or something? Yeah, yeah, making it's a little dam some right there or something. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm nice. a huge fan, big fan right. of beavers. Yeah, what's that really about like again? Them. Why are you the, okay? <laughs> you well, like, like they look really cute. First that's of true. all, like they look like really they got like the little. uh well, flap of a tail, and mm-hmm. they're the only animals that can affect things on an individual basis to the entire ecology, and oftentimes in a positive manner. Like, they're very healthy for the environment. Nice. Um, I almost, I don't, I'm pretty sure i told this story before on the pod, <laughs> yeah. but I think, like, I, I considered going to Oregon State to go to college over there, because their mascots were the beavers. Oh, actually... I've never heard I'd never heard that. That's <laughs> Yeah. I was like fourteen. So I was oh, like okay. <laughs> it was not founded on I was any good say logic like just because of the <laughs>
1: mascot, but because you're fourteen, I, I see. Yeah, I was <laughs> cool like mascot. Yeah, it's like the only one. It's like the only university that has a beater. <laughs> I do remember like in um I'm not a big sports guy, but I would play a lot of video games. And of course there are video games where you play as like real basketball teams and things like that. And I remember I would always just pick the uh, team that had the coolest insignia. Like I think the Timberwolves, I'm assuming is a basketball team maybe. Uh, I yeah, I know what you're liking the about. Wolves. Yeah, like the they have a
0: cool logo right there. <laughs> uh-huh. Um I mean, that's like, I mean, when it comes down to it, you might as well, if you don't know anything about sports and you're like, you're having to like go into a sporting, like betting pool or something like that. Yeah. Just go with like the coolest, like a mascot or insignia. <laughs> I would say don't it.
1: bet on it if you don't
0: know. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, yeah, that's what, that's what we did, I guess. Just choose our favorite uh, mascot.
0: Anyway, Lee, what are we talking about here? What's going on? All right. We're talking about the
1: 1990s TV series, Northern Exposure, because this is the Northern Overexposure podcast. You said it. My name is Lee and uh, Charles, you're co-hosting here with me. Uh, We like to talk about the TV series, Northern Exposure, one episode at a time. Uh, I've seen this show uh, since I think the first time I saw it was over a decade ago and I've watched it uh, multiple times. And Charles, every episode that we discuss, it's your first time watching it. So this is your first time in season five, and uh, we're closing on to the end. Obviously, we've made it this far in the series, so you have a pretty good rapport with the characters, the story, the ideas of what's going on here. Uh, But it's fresh for you each time, which is is always nice.
0: Yeah, first time seeing every episode. And speaking of which, I would say that for this episode, I was not the biggest fan. Mm.
1: Yeah, you know, I remembered this episode. Uh, you know, I remembered what happens in this episode. I didn't remember fully uh, grasping it or like it didn't really stick with my memory too great. Like, I, you know, reading the synopsis, watching the episode, I'm like, oh yeah, I know this episode. But I don't know, there's like one plot line. There's a couple things in here that... Um, performed higher than I expected, met, met my expectations or, or beat my expectations. Because as I'm saying, like, I don't remember this one too fondly. Rewatching it, I'm a fan. I do like this episode. Okay. Um, but we're also coming off the heels of some really great episodes. I think, Charles, you mentioned, like, Fish Story, which we covered recently, was one of your favorite episodes, like, in the entire series, not just this uh, season.
0: Yeah. I felt like these past three episodes were like a hat trick. Yeah. They were doing really well. Three consecutive, uh, as the kids would call it, bangers. I don't think they call it that <laughs> anymore, though. I think the kids have moved on to like a new lingo. Like, I'm behind. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the kids call. It. Well, what's funny is like banger, actually, I don't know. Like, I don't know the etymology of that sort of pop slang term, but it feels old-fashioned, but maybe that's just me. Maybe it is now it's old-fashioned, but.
0: Yeah, I want to say that was something that was like popular, like, pre-COVID? Like. Well,
1: I mean, like, it sounds like, oh, that old, that old, you know, jazz tune is a banger or something, you know, like talking about old like oh. music, but I guess banger is, I don't know. Yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been reinvigorated <laughs> as a phrase. And then also now it's uh, as you're saying, it was like, it's kind of gone out of fashion maybe.
0: What? Uh, uh, well, I don't want to get it too much. Okay. There's like other words now. That like I, I don't understand why we're using them as words. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I felt like this one was. It was the Ed plot line. It was that plot line that tripped me up because mm, I, yeah. I was yes. not involved with it. I, yeah. I did not understand on a surface level of how this is applying to the character of Ed, and on the deeper level of like why are we going through this plot line in a way. The weakest um,
1: plot line for me, I'd say, in this episode.
0: Yeah. There was a lot of things I think that just like really soured the entire thing for me. Mm, okay. Uh the other plot lines weren't like nearly as bad, but they also weren't like mm-hmm. uh, really fantastic either. But again, like I'm saying, we're, like we're we're saying this coming off of the heels of three great episodes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, who are the who are the director and the writer of this episode? All right. Yeah. Let's go in here.
1: The episode, uh, the 20th episode now of season five called A Wing and a Prayer. Now I want to talk about that title in a second, but let's go through the credits. As you said, the director is credited as Lorraine Senna. We actually see um, in the opening titles of the episode, the full credit is Lorraine Senna Ferrara. Um, So let's see. I looked her up on Wikipedia. She does a lot of uh, directing TV and also did some uh, feature films. I think her last feature, maybe even her last directing credit was 2007. So for sure she hasn't directed any features recently and she she may not have directed anything since then. But she was also uh, notably the only woman who ever directed an episode of The Sopranos. We know that David Chase is the executive producer now of uh, Northern Exposure in this series. He later goes on to do The Sopranos and brings back uh, Lorraine Senna for for an episode there in The Sopranos, which is interesting. I feel like Sopranos is quite a long series and there aren't any... um, I mean, I would say Northern Exposure definitely had probably more men than women directing episodes, but there's been a few, you know, really notable episodes of Northern Exposure directed by women.
0: Yeah. I think that's really odd. Yeah. Wait, how many episodes of Sopranos are there? I feel like there's like
1: five seasons or more. We should look it up right now just to make sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. How many episodes of Sopranos? 86. All right. So let's, let's do some basic math right here.
1: It's like four and a half, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> There's
0: only right, a half so that means now. like 1.2% rounding up of the episodes were directed by women.
1: Wow. And there
0: are Wait, six seasons. Hang on. Seasons. Hang on.
1: <laughs> Math. There are six seasons. Yeah. Uh, six seasons, 86
0: episodes. Hang on. It's just one divided by 86, right? That's how you would find out the ratio? Uh, Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. I guess it is. That's it. That's <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> two. 1.2%? I'm not prepared for this, but, uh, <laughs> well, Oh, wait, this, is a bit, like, yeah, this is how like, I, I lost a key part of the thing. This is how I would back check it. Cause you would just take 1.2 and you will multiply it by the, uh, denominator. You should get your, uh, yeah, it's not like, close enough to hundred. Yeah. So that's, that's true. Okay. We, we can cut that out. <laughs> but like, Yeah. what uh, It's a uh, 1.2% rounding up.
1: That's yeah. I mean, one out of 86 episodes. It's, um, that's pretty surprising, but, Uh, let's see, let's continue on these credits here for this episode. The writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who just wrote the last episode that we covered Gift of the Maggie and many more episodes. If you want to, uh, check out their credits, some of our favorite episodes in this series, they also will go on to write a lot of The Sopranos with David Chase. Uh, the air date finally is March 28th, 1994. And Charles,
0: I was talking about that title, "A Wing and a Prayer." Have you heard that phrase before? I've heard of living on a prayer. Yeah. from Bon John Bon John Bon Bon John Bon Jovi. Yeah, John Bon Jovi. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, living on a prayer. I was I've heard like a wing and a prayer before, and I'm trying to figure out where it came from. A quick Google search suggests it originated in World War II. And an early reference uh, is in the 1942 movie with uh, John Wayne, The Flying Tigers. Apparently, huh. someone says, uh, Any word on that flight yet? Yes, sir. It was attacked and fired on by a Japanese aircraft. She's coming in on one wing and a prayer. And then, apparently, that line was taken up and included in a song. Uh, like this World War II song coming in on a wing and a prayer. So I, I guess, I mean, according to this Wikipedia search, it, it really s- sprouted out of this World War II like movie and that became a phrase. Uh, but it did sound familiar to me. And I'm wondering huh. if um, I guess the title of this this episode is referencing the song maybe. I don't know.
0: I've heard of a, On a Hope and a Prayer Okay. Which has the same meaning as yeah. on a wing and a prayer, which is like the hope of a positive outcome despite little chance of success. I, mean, I, I get why it's called that. Yeah. Because, you know, Maggie's flying a plane and everything. <laughs> yeah, that is a big part of um, of that oh, plotline. Yeah, Hang on. If you scroll further down on the page, it says it could also mean to arrive or fly in with one's plane in very bad condition. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely see what you're saying, though. It it ties in uh, pretty clearly with Maggie's plane. She's building a plane in this episode. But maybe let's start off with the very first scene, kind of set up the episode, and then we'll uh, deviate onto our different paths, the different plot lines of the episode.
0: Yeah. So we get the first shot of Ed... Arriving in town, he's got a little paper route going on here. (laughs) I think it looks really nice. Uh, There's snow on the ground. It's a white, foggy haze of, I'm not too sure what time it would be. Because I'm thrown off because they're in Alaska. I understand (laughs) that like the way that their sun rises and falls is a little bit different from like the rest of America. So it could be like, you know, like five o'clock. In yeah, the 5 morning, right? Saying, there. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: supposed to be early, I think, because um because it is a paper route, as we see. And we ha- do wait, hear hang on. Our, Yeah. Have you ever seen the paper boy before? In real life? Yeah. I don't think so. So the way it worked in in our at least in our neighborhood, Charles, is like uh the paper would be like at the end of our driveway. So I always assume someone just like drove by in a truck and threw. I, don't, I must have been so early, right? I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the paper point.
0: I don't think I have either. That's what's making me think about this. It's like, I have definitely Bird, in my life stayed birds up. Birds aren't real. <laughs> it's <like laughs> a conspiracy. I'm just saying, I've stayed up like yeah, until the sun true. has come up. In, mm-hmm. in my years of living, and I, I don't think I've ever seen like the paper boy so sneaky, yeah, yeah. But the paper ends up in a way. And Ed,
1: uh, as, um, just to segue us back in here, uh, sneakily delivers some paper to Ruth Ann's house and catches some uh, catches a glimpse of something maybe he shouldn't have. So he goes undetected, you know, by Ruth Ann. Um, but I did just want to say about uh, about Ed's paper route. Um, oh yeah, I was trying to say he does later. Uh, When he gossips to Eugene, maybe, or when he's telling it to someone else, he does mention the time being like 6 a.m. or something. So we can assume that this is supposed to be a foggy morning um, that Ed is walking around with his his, uh, newspapers. I love that the dog runs up to Ed. Actually, at first, when you first watched this episode, I couldn't really tell that Ed was like doing a paper route. He's just like walking around in the fog. This dog walks up and in... um, you know, retrieve something from Ed, like Ed's like, Oh, Hey Lulu, here you go. And he hands her, I think we could assume at that point it's a newspaper, but it's still kind of unclear. But I just thought that was so cool that the dog is like, you know, has this sort of like sentience enough to be like, I need to get my paper for my master, you know, like <laughs> go run up to Ed and grab
0: it. Yeah. None of my dogs have ever had that, uh, that instinct to get mm-hmm. paper. I've seen it before. I've seen it like in pictures and in real life. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how you would train your dog. I was going to say, that, uh, you
1: might need a train, maybe, but I don't know.
0: Ah, uh, very odd. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is where he catches a glimpse of Ruthann being with Walt. Uh, we can see that their relationship has blossomed from a couple episodes ago, whenever mm-hmm. Walt admitted he had feelings for her. This is kind of where like I had the idea of where like, this episode was kind of going with thematically, because like right after this is the credits, and then we go to that poem that I had said earlier, that Chris recites mm-hmm. over K-Bear, and it's all about spring. It's all about reinvigoration, coming back into life, and... You know, Ruthanne's relationship with Walt is kind of indicative of that. Yeah.
1: It's like the beginning of a new, like a blossoming relationship here, which we'll get to. That's more of sort of Ed's plot line. Uh, We mentioned after the opening title credits, Chris does his K-Bear address with the Robert Frost poem. And uh, at the end of that, Maggie rushes into K-Bear to grab Maurice, who's inside in his office. She, uh, basically is like pointing out that there's a new delivery. Um, someone's like driving in with a truck and, uh, we see, actually I can't remember exactly. I know Maurice like comes out there with them. Maybe they have to sign some papers or something, but we learn in this scene that Maggie plans to build a plane, a Titan tornado, uh, like home kit, build your own plane thing. Uh, you know, that sounds pretty crazy, but You know, this definitely is a this definitely is a thing. Like Titan Coordinator is a real you know line of planes, and as we see throughout the episode, there's like tons of like cargo boxes, tons of pieces. So it is a it is a big endeavor. But um, but yeah, I just thought that was so interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would ever ride on one of those. (laughs) Would you? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I I think I I think I would. Yeah, I don't know. You would? I I don't think so. I just Plus, you have to get it like checked
1: out and I mean it's it is a pretty I mean I would say compared to a uh, a plane that you know what do you call it like a 747 or like a a big plane that mm-hmm. you would travel across the United States in or across the you know the ocean or whatever this is a much simpler device I would assume and I don't know I mean like I guess. Well, like, that's
0: the problem, though. Avi- it's, like,
1: it's a much simpler device. Well, I'm just gonna say, like, aviation seems kind of like magic, but at the end of the day, like, we figured it out. We know how these machines can lift off, and I don't, I don't know this the littlest about this at all. But at the end of the episode, Maggie does have to get the plane inspected. So that person is looking to make sure that this thing can work, you know, and I don't know, we don't see them like actually test drive it, but I don't know. I just don't think it's that I'm, I'm not putting aviation up on a pedestal. I think like you could make this plane, you could make it fly. I'm afraid of heights, so I would never like fly (laughs) a plane, but if someone built their plane, Especially if that person flew around in their own plane, it's like, yeah, it works. It's great. Uh, I, w- I would, I think I would trust them, but it depends. There's definitely a lot of caveats there. I'll give you that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Maggie's just checking off all the stuff that's in this cargo truck. I want to say one thing that really caught my eye this episode is in the lighting, in particular. Mm-hmm. Is it just me, or is like, is it really dark? Well, are you in the next scene now, where she's like uh, working
1: in the? garage or something?
0: No, 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 no. They're just outside. Oh. Like, Joel, like, strolls up, and he's like, hey, Maggie, what are you doing? She's like, I'm building the plane.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't notice that. Um, I didn't notice any darker lighting. I can go look at it real fast. But It looks
0: like the colors are just much more washed.
1: Hmm. Oh, you know what? It kind of does look like a gray, a gray morning, and like, as we mentioned before, like, the snow is melting, and that sort of just makes the roads look, like, muddy and gross, and... You know, it could also just be that the weather was overcast or something. You know, it does mm-hmm. seem a little drabber outside for sure. Okay, but also in the scene, uh, we get the idea. Not only is Maggie going to build this plane, but she's going to partner up with Maurice. And uh, I think that's pretty fun. Like, we don't really—I don't can't think of another plot line that was like Maggie plus Maurice working together. Uh, Maggie is clearly very excited to have her own plane and build it and I think Maurice is actually even pretty uh, excited himself like they're pretty eager and it seems like a pretty fun endeavor at least at the start here.
0: Yeah I agree I think it's apparent that we don't see a lot Maggie and Maurice and I think we should I think they make for a very fun dynamic between them because we know that like They have like a mutual amount of respect for one another. It's Mm -hmm. not like that Maggie dislikes Maurice a whole lot or they even had any romantic history between them. It's just two people that are really good at their craft and that are pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, I think the last time that I can remember where Maggie and Maurice are sort of like, um, you know, involved in the same plot line is one where Maggie, like they discover some sort of like anthropological uh, artifacts or something in her front yard. Like, you know, they start like a digging site. And even in that episode though, it's pretty clear that it's like Maggie versus Maurice from pretty early on. Whereas in this episode, it does seem like they are going to team up at the very beginning at least. Um, And we do, you know, there's some conflict there, but I think it's cool at least at, at the start. It's like, all right, these people are Obviously, getting along, it makes sense because they both love uh, aviation. So this is a fun little um, uh, premise for a plot line.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right. So this is going to go into our second plot line, which is where we get an introduction to a new character. His name mm-hmm. is Eugene. Yes. And he is a fan of whole English walnuts. <laughs> yeah. Eugene, I wrote down,
1: Eugene looks familiar to me. Uh, but it's because, Charles, he's a recurring character after this. So I don't know that he's in every episode, but I looked at his IMDb credits. He's only ever, according to IMDb, he's only ever acted in Northern Exposure. But it starts with this episode and continues throughout. Um, so, yeah, this guy, this guy, Eugene, actually, it's not even that Eugene is coming to get the uh, walnuts. It's that Ed is like, oh, hey, Eugene, come see real fast. We got those walnuts for you or something. And he wants to get... Eugene's attention uh because he wants to start up some gossip about Ruthann and Walt and it really is Ed's like um it's through Ed's own volition that this is happening because he basically has to guide Eugene through this whole gossip like Eugene's like wait what what's going on and Ed has to pretty much spell it out to him uh and by the end Ed, we can see, is starting to feel guilty about all of this. Uh, And he even asks Eugene not to tell anybody. Basically, the gossip is uh, Ed saw Ruthann and Walt in the morning, uh, you know, in the same house, like, basically having breakfast and kissing, things like that. I don't know, though. I mean, I I think Eugene just... uh, from a face value, looks like a pretty trustworthy dude. He's got a big smile. He, you know, he wasn't, he he wasn't initially keyed into the gossip. It took him a moment to even pick up on it. So uh, I don't know. I think, I think, uh, I think he'll keep the secret though. I think later in the episode, what is it? Ruth Ann says like, you told Eugene that that guy is like such a big mouth or something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, so like really like the whole plot line is like, a to B to C. We're like, okay, I, I said something I shouldn't have said. And now I'm going back to go try to put it back into its bottle. You obviously can't. And then we try to live with the ramifications of it. And I think that's why I have a problem with the plotline is that like it's so ordinary. It, it's such a sitcommy. It doesn't have like really any twists or turns, or it doesn't like flip itself. Right. Uh, it
1: just pretty much goes as you're saying A B C. Like it just goes its course. We see. We kind of know what is gonna happen when it happens. It's stressful. Uh, to see, obviously, and even for Ed, like, knows, like, he knows it's happening when he's doing it. Like, even in this scene, he's you can see him starting to feel guilty about it. So, it just kind of
0: plays out. Yeah, it's a very one-dimensional plot line. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it yeah. as we get into it. But, yeah, that's basically the second plot line. And then the third one is coming right after this, which is Shelley and Holling are waiting for Father McCary to come baptize their child. Right.
1: Uh, so I think like in this scene, Shelly is like waiting at the windows. Like, I think this might be him. Like he's coming all the way from Fairbanks to baptize baby Miranda. And we get a little bit before Father McCary even shows up, we get a little idea that, um, well, we know Shelly as a character you know, is very much into the whole Catholic religious thing. I think there's a great moment in um, Soulmates where Hauling sings uh, Ave Maria for Shelley to give her that sense of like a Catholic mass uh, that she, that's like one of the biggest things she missed about Christmas, it turns out. She didn't really realize it until, until it hit her, you know, like she realized, well, there's not going to be any ca- Catholic mass. It's just not going to be the same. Then there's other episodes, like I think even in the, um, was this in the Gift of the Maggie where um, they have Maurice over for, uh, to stay over at their house and they do like a, uh, they say grace and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that was last episode.
0: Yeah, they had that as well. And we can see that Holling is like not the most devout follower, if Mm. anything, he's um, does not follow any organized religion right there. Right, uh, You know, he's saying like, eh, you know, he'll be fine. The father will get here safely. He's got St. Christopher on his side. I was not familiar with this one. Um, oh, Saint, yeah. Yeah. What is that? So basically, St. Christopher has a legend that he carried a child who was unknown to him was actually Christ himself. So because of that... He's known as the patron saint of travelers. And ah. small images of him are often worn around the neck, on a bracelet, carried in the pocket, placed in vehicles by Christians. All this from Wikipedia, because I had no idea about St. <laughs> yeah. uh, Christopher.
1: Yeah, I mean, neither you or I, Charles, are uh, Catholics or Christians, so we don't know really anything about uh, these this religion. But um, we'll get a little dose of that today in this episode. As you mentioned, hauling isn't very... Um, Isn't very religious and Shelly wants to, um, well, she's nervous to present as anything other than devout in front of the father, uh, in front of the priest, Father McCary. So she's kind of like, you know, be on your best behavior hauling, like be respectful. Um, You know, this is a, this is a real deal priest that's coming for us or (laughs) coming to see us. Sorry, not coming for us. Um, (laughs) But uh, those are our three plot lines there. And at this point, I would suggest, Charles, let's split on to
0: one. Let's just focus on one storyline. Maybe Ed? All right. Well, the next time that we see Ed is him working at Ann's store. And she's a little bit late to the store. She's saying that, like, oh, the battery of my alarm clock went out. And, you know, she kind of lies and Ed's playing along. And then finally, she reveals the truth to Ed. She tells him, like, oh, well, like, okay, let me, let me be straightforward with you because you're my closest friend. I've actually been seeing Walt and that's why I've been so late. Mm-hmm. That's really, I thought something else was going to happen in this scene. <laughs> that's all that happens.
1: <laughs> it's funny that it starts off as if like, it'll be a little more complex of a plot. Like Ruth Ann is going to keep this secret from Ed and Ed, um, you know, has this information that he shouldn't have. What's he going to do with that? But it's funny that in the midst of that, you know, when Ann is telling him, oh, my alarm didn't work. In the midst of all this, she's like, you know what? Let me just tell you what, what's happening. So we didn't even need to have any of that subterfuge or whatever, but... Uh, it was short enough, so it didn't really waste any time. But uh, she, yeah, she says, I wanted to tell you because after all, you are my closest friend. And that is a big, uh, that is sort of an underline that will come up again in this episode. But she says to him, like, don't tell anybody. Obviously, Ed has already told Eugene at this point. Um, so that's basically all that happens in the scene, as you said, Charles. But I wrote down also, what should Ed do? I think... I think at this point he's got to come clean about Eugene, like right then and there, nip it in the bud because, um, you know, it's exactly what Ruth Ann did. Like she was trying to keep a secret and then confessed. So Ed could take that as an example and do the same and be like, okay, well, I should tell you something as well, like, you know, this happened. But I think what's going on is Ed doesn't really fully understand why he started the gossip. Like it just kind of happened. We get like a very brief explanation for that, like towards the end of Ed's plot line. Like, why is this so infectious for Ed? Why is this so, why is he drawn to gossip about this? When he knows immediately as he's doing it, I mean, immediately after he does it, that he shouldn't have done it.
0: Right. Uh, it's for a, you know, fairly human (laughs) basic reason. But before we get to that, we can get to the next scene with Ed, which is him trying to walk back the lie with Uh, Eugene. He meets (laughs) with Eugene again and they have a fairly long walk and talk shoot sequence. They're going through town. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of nice to see all the stores like there is sourdough Annie's. Twice Mm. as nice thrift shop consignments. That's kind (laughs) of neat. A little pawn shop. And it's just like a bunch of flavors for the town of Sicily. And Ed is telling Eugene like, oh, you know, maybe they aren't seeing each other. Maybe it was just like a series of coincidences. And I don't think Eugene like fully realizes what's going on here. Because he's kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah, it's strange that Ed... Rather than at this point, Ed could just tell Eugene, hey, look, I messed up. We should really not be talking about this. Like, let's just forget this entire thing. Instead, it seems easier for Ed to concoct a whole other series of events. It's just like that. Even as you said, Charles, it's like kind of also confusing to Eugene, who's like, wait, why why is this important? Like, just tell me more of the gossip. You know, I don't get Mm -hmm. this is not... um, this doesn't work the same as gossip, this this whole idea of Ed trying to... I think he says, like, what probably actually happened was Walt was over at Ruthann's to bleed her septic tank, and then, you know, because it was so early, uh, she, like, invited him to have some breakfast. But it's, like, it's totally uninteresting. It doesn't, like, stick in your head like gossip. And, yeah, just the, the wrong way to go, I guess.
0: Right. And the next thing that we see with Ed uh it's involved with the other plot line but it does mix back into ed it's coming off the heels of maurice being very disappointed in maggie Mm -hmm. and maurice has got this very fancy dinner party that he's throwing for some rich folk and maggie is supposed to be attending but maurice pulls her invitation and has ed be a stand-in because he's around like similar age as the daughter so mm-hmm. they're over there, they're arranging for the dinner party. And if we skip to the dinner party, we can see that Ed is, uh, he's drinking milk from a goblet. Yeah. That's the first <laughs> shot. It's like a goblet of milk.
1: It's clearly, it goes to his mouth. Clearly
0: out of the, his depth because Maurice is because <laughs> Maurice and, uh, you know, the party guests are talking about like, you know, like, uh, rich things, uh, whose financial <laughs> amount is more than what Ed could possibly have. Um, things mm-hmm. he just can't grasp so he's out of the conversation and Ed knows it he's socially aware enough to be right. like okay I'm not contributing anything to the conversation I feel alone so he pulls out the only thing that he has in his pocket that no one else has which is this mm-hmm. private information about Ruthann and uh, Maurice kind of like he really takes notice because previously mm-hmm. he was telling Ed being like You know, it's like, all right, just try not to talk too much. It's obvious that you're not, (laughs) you know, you don't have a lot of similarities with us. But now Maurice is like, his interest has been piqued. He's like, oh, okay, like what's going on here?
1: Yeah, everyone at the table too seems to chime in and get a good like chuckle about it. I don't know if you recognized that's the, I mean, I'm sure it's the same character. It's the same actor that played Lester Haynes in a previous episode who is sort of like, Just another like wealthy person in the area and sort of a a rival to Maurice, at least the last time we saw Mm -hmm. him. They were sort of um, working on some deal that um, I think in the end Maurice got the the bitter end of the stick. But um, yeah, they all seem to really eat up this gossip and uh, they all have their own takes on it. We've got some laughing. I think Lester's wife is like, well, good for Ruth Ann. Um, but again, I think the ending of this scene is just sort of like a shot on Ed. We can tell he's gripping with this. He feels terrible. What did he just say? Why did he say it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty clear.
0: Do you are are you a fan of hearing that like dinner ambience sound whenever they shoot dinner scenes? Talking about like the Clu- the clutter
1: of like forks on china or something yeah, like, like like the
0: clinking of plates, drinks being sipped, all that like there it almost sounds like it comes from a like a stock uh like a yeah. stock sound. Yeah, I don't know if
1: this was stock uh library stuff or foley or if this was captured on the day, but there definitely is there is a lot of that sort of ambiance. Mm-hmm. Uh, stock sounds that you could pull for scenes like this. I
0: understand why, but I've always—it's always, always kind of grated me whenever I have to hear that. Oh, well, I was going to say I'm not a huge—I mean, I think it
1: used appropriately, it gives the right—the right, um, right ambiance, the right feel. But uh, I'm thinking of the movie Phantom Thread. Have you seen the Phantom Thread? It's like a recent Paul Thomas Anderson movie. There's a scene where I think the main character is like having breakfast and there's some other people around the table with him. And I think it's supposed to, if I remember correctly, it's supposed to illustrate like how every little minor thing is annoying him. And it's very quiet. No one's talking. They're just like eating their breakfast. But all, of the, all the sound is dialed up to like a hundred of like the clinking and clattering. So I think, Charles, that's... You're very much like you feel. I think you would relate to that scene because <laughs> you feel like you can hear every like. It's so loud; it's almost ridiculous. But I understand why they do it. It's a little ridiculous. Though. Yeah,
0: like I, I know why. It just like it almost like overshadows the dialogue. <laughs> All I can hear <laughs> is like tink, tink, Look, that can be a problem too. Yeah, when uh, when you're acting,
1: you may get the note of like, okay, like don't. Be very careful with your silverware, like don't make excess noise, especially on, if you're talking, try not to make any noise when you have a line because mm. we need to get those clean. But yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, the next plot line doesn't actually have Ed, but obviously he's indirectly related to him. He's got, mm-hmm. does this child have a name? Donnie. Donnie. Oh, right. I forgot about this scene. Yeah. Donnie Spellman. Donnie. He looked like he just wandered off the set of Gilmore Girls. Seriously, I thought, yeah. like, he's wearing clothing that looks appropriate to that show. He looks like a character from that show. He's got, you know, got, like, high cheekbones and, like, hair pulled back. I was just like, this guy clearly came from Gilmore Girls. But basically, he's here entering the uh, the
1: general store, Ruthann's store, being like, um, all right, I'm here for you. You need me to, like, sweep or whatever. Basically, through the course of the scene, we understand that I think Ed must have sent him here to the store to take, uh, to take over his job, Ed's job. He's, I think he even says, Ed gave me his job. And Ruthann's like, no, 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 that's not, well, she doesn't say that's not how this works, but I mean, that's not how this works at yeah. all. Like you can't just <laughs> like get someone else's job. Ruthann, you know, would need to uh, approve your hiring. You know, she would want, she want to know who's working for her. But anyway, she's like, no, this isn't right. I need to go speak to Ed right now. And uh, if you don't mind, we can go to the (laughs) next scene, which is Ann coming to Ed's apartment. And um, yeah, I mean, this is where it all comes out. Uh, We understand that Ed has been gossiping and he feels bad about it. And of course, Ann is mad, but she clarifies um, distinctly that she doesn't hate Ed. Um, It's not like, of course, they're still best friends. She's just like mad that this happened. Um, But... You know that's not going to like end their friendship. Life will go on. It turns out, however, Ed still feels terrible. He even wishes that he would be dead. Like he wishes a stray bullet would <laughs> come through the wall and kill him, <laughs> which is crazy. He's really—I mean, this is like incredibly depressed, incredibly sorrowed, and and just like um, yeah, I don't know. Ruthanne forgives him. Like again, she like she states it in no uncertain terms that like this is okay. Like I forgive you now. Though she says she's teed off. I wrote that down, teed off, like ticked off, which sounds like a, yeah, like a euphemism for ticked off. But I don't think that ticked off is explicit at all. Mm-hmm. You could just say ticked off. Teed off. I don't know. I just yeah. caught me. I've heard that before. <laughs> teed off. Yeah. Peed off. I've heard, but that kind of sounds, that sounds dumb because it sounds like you're
0: peeing, I guess. Yeah. I oh, don't know. That's a great one. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's basically essentially it. And then we get mm-hmm. to the final home stretch of Ed's plot line, which is um yes. him confessing to Chris, who's dressed up in his little priest outfit. He said he got a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Got a lot of uh yeah. accessories. <laughs> he's got like the it's like an altar boy type thing, I guess. He's
1: got all he's also got like a um What is it? You said accessories. He's got like a Bible with all of Jesus's words are highlighted in red Mm -hmm. or something like that.
0: Right. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting because it's coming off of the heels of Shelly going to confession with Father McCary. And now it kind of looks like Ed's Mm -hmm. going to confession with Chris. Like that's who he seeks out for spiritual advice. And Chris lays it on the line for him he's saying like, yeah, you know, I get it. You want a little extra power for yourself, be a big man. So you want to reveal a little bit of information, like I know something you don't and all that. And Ed relates it to movies saying, oh, it's like the Godfather. Yeah, the and, Godfather. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying like, well, you know, they got it even better though. Like at least the worst that that character had was that he died immediately, but I got to go the rest mm-hmm. of my life with this knowledge that I betrayed Ruth Ann."
1: Yeah. And so, uh, and I think even Chris is like, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a bummer, man. All right. And then like, he (laughs) goes like, it's time for like, he doesn't, he doesn't have a, uh, a solution. I don't think like, I, I don't ever really think at least not, not very often is there ever an easy solution, but Chris is there to sort of like guide you in a new direction, give you more, a different perspective to take. And then, you know, by the end of the episode, you'll figure out, you know, some sort of answer or you learn something new about yourself or about this situation that you know can help you take a step forward but uh, you know at this point uh, it's it's not looking great for ed until uh, we get to the actual baptism which we uh, you know talked about earlier we're now at randy's baptism and Father McCary, uh, you know, has like a couple words to give. And I think, uh, obviously we're supposed to draw a close connection to Ed here because we, as, as Father McCary is uh, performing this baptism and he has his words, we get close up shots of Ed's face reacting to this. He even starts to tear up a little bit. And what Father McCary is talking about is in a large part about, um, forgiveness and sort of redemption, repentance, Uh, Here, it's pretty short, so I'll play the little soundbite of Father McCary's words here at the baptism. And Ed is listening to this and taking it all uh, very much to heart. We gather today to wash away sin. Sin we are born with simply because we are human. And it is through God's grace that we receive forgiveness. Because God understands his sons and his daughters in their human failings, and he forgives the truly repentant. Yeah, so that is pretty short, but I think it pretty uh pretty simply connects this idea of uh, our sin and being able to be forgiven. As you mentioned earlier, I think you put it pretty well when when Ed was talking about in The Godfather, you know, at least the guy gets off, you know, immediately, whereas like with Ed, he has to live the rest of his life with this uh, knowledge that he committed this sin. But whether or not Ed is taking from this, like God will forgive you, Ed, it's okay. Or he could even just think like, oh yeah, I mean, well, Ruthann, you know, still loves me and she's forgiven me. And like, you know, that's the, that's part of being alive, baby. You're going to make mistakes and people uh, will forgive you. Um, Or, you know, you can be forgiven. You can make right on those mistakes. You can repent. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's what I got from that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's pretty much it. It's a yeah. pretty ordinary uh, ordinary yeah. lesson, ordinary plot line, ordinary uh, characterizations of these characters. Um, I don't really have like a lot to say to it. I mean, I guess it's nice that it tied into the other two plot lines. And I, I think like overall, mm-hmm. the entire episode is about starting anew, about having this baptism. Uh, I'll, I'll discuss it more as we go into the other plot lines. But I think like the color plays into a major role into here. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of other fun details, but like this plot line, was just like, I really, I was just not feeling it. Um, as the kids say, I was not, not feeling the vibes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, you know, at least it's an, for me, it's
1: just like a nice, pretty ending, you know, it's serene, it's calm. Uh, it's forgiving at the end and we can see a wonderful performance by Darren Burroughs, you know, he's starting to tear up in his eyes. Um, I think it is the uh, the least complex plot line for sure. You had pointed out, Charles, at the beginning of this plot line that it's pretty straightforward. It just goes from A to B to C. Like it goes in a straight line. We understand what's happening and what will happen. You know, it's not surprising. Uh, but you also made a good point that it's like, you know... I, I guess Ed is a good character for this um, for this storyline, but it's not the most exciting Ed plotline that I could think of. Like he's a good candidate to go through this idea because he's sort of naive, you mm-hmm. know, in his own way, and he's learning about forgiveness and repentance. But um,
0: I, I mean, you take this plotline and you compare it to the one in which Ed's got his hand in the hole. And he's like waiting to have like enlightenment reach him, and (laughs) Shelly comes and talks to him. And they're just like, you know, it's just, they're just seeing like the sunrise. I think that that's Mm -hmm. such a great moment. And uh, there's a lot going on. a lot There's a lot going on in that plot. And then you compare Mm -hmm. it to this one, which is like, uh, it's just, yeah, it's disappointing to see. But, you know, I, I don't wanna harsh too much on it. Um, because yeah. I think the other two plot lines are actually pretty nice. I really like them.
1: Yeah. The other two are definitely, uh, I think, a lot more complex. And I think that's what, that's actually what I really was surprised by when rewatching is like how complex some of these plot lines can be. I mean, there's definitely things going on, but I think it has more underneath the surface as well. Um, maybe I'm reading in too far, but I liked it. Uh, but for this one with, with Ed, it's pretty, pretty standard. Maybe they just, they just wanted to keep one of the plot lines simple so they could, um, Tie everything nicely in a bow at the end, but um, but we do have two other plot lines here. Charles, where do you think we should jump to next?
0: Yeah, let's talk about Maggie's plot line. All right. So when we return to Maggie, she's back in her like shed. I don't really know what to call it. Like her her it's like workshop. A garage or something. Workshop. Yeah. I wonder if
1: we had seen this. We've definitely seen like workshop garage sets before. So I can't tell if they're reusing it or if this is a new one. I would assume they're reusing it, but. Looks a little different. Looks just like different angles and stuff.
0: Right, uh, she's working with Maurice, and Maurice is got this little notepad in which he's checking off everything that's being listed for the inventory. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Maggie makes a common mistake of not uh, labeling something that would obviously would be labeled, but was still in the wrong for not labeling it in a way. Mm -hmm. And Maurice calls her out on it. And he says, like, you know, like, it's the attention to details. That's the thing that really matters. Like, you Mm -hmm. gotta, you gotta get everything down. It doesn't matter how obvious it is. And at this stage of the plot line, I am kind of in agreement with Maurice. I Mm -hmm. think, like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, you want to make sure that, like, everything is being in tuned. You're, You're just trying to make sure... That there's no, there's nothing missing. Um, and one example that I can think of is that I believe it's used by Japanese railways. Uh, the conductors do this thing called pointing and calling where they indicate and verbally call out their status. So like if they're saying like, I'm going to move this lever and they're going to like point to the lever and then they do so. And then like the other person's like, okay, I'm going to go do X thing. And you just call it out right there. Uh, now it's like commonly used everywhere. It's used in the New York City subway system. It's used in Toronto subways and in China's. It's just really important for your actions and reactions to work with your brains, eyes, hands, mouth, and ears. And it helps out everyone else too whenever you can verbalize what you're saying. And it may be obvious, but I think it triggers like a special part of your brain whenever you're actively seeing it mm-hmm. and in like other people will have to hear you. I think that just calls a lot of attention to it and it works. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking of, this is a little more simplified, but when handing off like a camera lens to someone else, like you can be looking at each other and like, you can have the lens, one person's holding the lens, the other person uh, grabs onto the lens, but you always say, got it before they let go. You know, because mm. anything could happen, and even when you both have your hands on it. Uh, so, you know, there's always like a verbalization of that, uh, which is important.
0: Doesn't that also happen on sets with uh, with guns? Isn't there supposed oh, to be like a system? There's a lot of, yeah, I, I wouldn't know how to exactly go into that,
1: but there's definitely a lot of, um, the, everything kind of shuts down on a movie set anytime, even when you bring in a prop gun, because you have to have someone specifically there for firearm safety. And like, even before, you know, even before the, um, the cameras are rolling, this person, firearm safety person is holding the weapon. And, uh, it's like only right up until the moment we're about to start rolling. Then they like give the weapon to the actor, you know, it's like very controlled. There's definitely proper ways of doing it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I couldn't speak too much more about it, but I've seen it, of course. Uh, they, they they have a pretty good workflow, I would assume, on working on that. Uh, but I, I wanted to point out, I, I think I agree to um, with Maurice in a lot of ways here. Like When you start off a project like this, it's important to be organized. Um, so I can definitely see, um, I can respect his point of view here. But I also wanted to give Maggie a little bit of credit as well. Like Maggie, I think what we're supposed to get from the scene is like she's ready to get going. And Maurice is like really wanting to slow things down, make sure he understands everything himself. Like he's looking over the manual. He's double checking uh, everything that she's done. And she's, I think she's already double checked. Maybe it's a later scene where she's like, you're triple checking now. But um, what I want to say about Maggie is like, I do think, uh, I understand taking a very slow, regimented, comprehensive workflow going through all this stuff. Uh, but at a certain point, that could also be considered overkill. I think in a situation like this, when you have a, a, a machine that you know could fall apart and break and could be very dangerous, you definitely want to take a lot of precaution. Uh, but the only thing I wanted to point out is um, this is a Maggie thing. Uh, at least that was my understanding. I think I think the episode does point out that it's like was 50-50 because later um Maggie does have to pay Maurice for his share whenever they split up. But it does feel like this is a Maggie thing. This is going to be her plane. He's there uh as an expert, as an advisor, as as someone to like mentor her. So, I thought just like kind of being devil's advocate like I I would say like maybe the way to do this is you know, let Maggie do things her way. And as a mentor, Maurice, like, you know, just you're there to make sure she doesn't make any costly mistakes or any dangerous mistakes, you know, like, but I think the best way for her to learn is to make those mistakes. And uh, f- just from the get go, it seems like Maurice is really like, being a little too controlling. Of course, that's Maurice. He's going to control everything. So I can see where there's a, a, a rift occurring here. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to give Maggie some credit and like trying to see, cause the writers are definitely setting up two diametrically opposed philosophies. In the end, I think I might have to go with Maurice and be like, we got to be careful about this stuff. But I wanted to acknowledge Maggie's, uh, sort of philosophy in this as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, you say that it's Maggie's thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's true, but also like on a deeper level, it's Maggie's thing. This is her characterization. <laughs> yeah. She is a person that doesn't like to be controlled. Mm-hmm. She's a person who struck out on her own to go move yeah. to Sicily, Alaska from um, from Gross Point, Michigan. Uh, she's an individual that like feels comfortable venturing out or even having the idea of building an airplane in the first place. And like you said, Maurice's characterization is always going to be a little bit controlling. So, you know, in the best of both worlds, you would have a situation where Maurice would reign in and Maggie would be a little bit more abiding Mm -hmm. and those two would come to a compromise right there. If we remove that, though, like if you remove context from that situation... I would, you know, side with a little bit with Maurice to be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you, you need to be careful right there. Yeah. And we see it come to like a little bit more head, uh, head to head in the next scene involving them, which is them still in this shed. And Maggie is saying like, all right, well, like you're now you're just like triple checking instead of double checking. You're really managing me. Mm-hmm. I think people could make an explanation and say like, oh, Maurice is like mansplaining everything Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. Maggie. I think that is like a viable, like I can see that explanation, but I would say like, it's less to do with gender and more to do with Maurice's characterization. I am not saying that it cannot be that though. I can, Mm -hmm. I can see the argument for it. I can even say being like, yeah, but like it happens to be toward that gender more. What I'm just trying to say is like, uh, when I was watching the scene, I didn't have that thought first mm-hmm. that it was planning. The first thing that popped into my brain was like, this is a characterization of Maurice.
1: Yeah. He's being like, he's, as we said, too controlling of this, not really giving Maggie any credit. Uh, triple checking, you know I mean? Obviously like we need to double check. We need to like go over, but I think... I, we haven't, we've, there's been some time that we haven't seen. So at this point we can see in Maggie's face that she's like fed up and she even like, you know, explodes on him. You know, we can see like she's had enough of this. So this has probably been going a little too far, uh, whatever control Maurice is trying to grip around this. Um, and I wrote down some lines from this scene. Uh, I think it's a really amazing delivery from, um, from Barry Corbin Maurice here. He says, you can't compare yourself to me. I've got experience. I'm an engineer. And he doesn't, I don't think he says that in a way to put her down, but of course this is like such a, a disrespectful thing to say to her. But he's like, in know, the way he delivers it is like, it's okay, Maggie. Like you don't have to like compare yourself to me. Like I'm much better than you, which is crazy to say, but <laughs> the way he delivers it is incredible. Um, And I'm sorry. The last thing is uh, uh, Maggie. I wrote down, she says, uh, because Maurice, I thought it would be fun. I didn't think you just try to take over. And Maurice says, you thought I'd take orders from you, huh? And obviously this is, this is going to be where they, they separate.
0: Yeah. We can see like, this is all about Maggie being given the faith that she Mm -hmm. can do something by herself. And this idea of faith in setting free is going to be a really big theme for both of these episodes. I mean, for both of these two remaining plot lines. Uh, We can see it play out again between Joel and Maggie, where Joel is saying, like, you know, like, I I do think it's dangerous. Like, if you told me that you were, you know, if if a United Airlines pilot told me that he was going to build this, I'd say, maybe go ahead. But with you... I'm just a little bit worried. And she's like, well, I am a pilot. Yeah, like, why don't exactly. you believe in me to set off on my own right here? Mm-hmm. And again, I think that like, it comes from a place of concern between these two people based on like, just like profession.
1: Yeah. Like they're not giving, are you saying just they don't give Maggie enough credit? Like she is a pilot. Uh, it,
0: it's like, um, what I'm trying to say is that, like, this would have happened if like, uh, Ed was trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Like if Ed was trying to build a plane. Now, obviously Maggie is a much more gifted pilot than Ed. Ed has literally zero experience, Yeah. but I think they're just cheating in this manner in which they are saying like, I- I'm just making sure that you're going to be okay. Yeah.
1: Maybe it's like, are you trying to say like, um, this is building a plane is a daunting task. And the fact that, uh, Maggie is now on her own, is what Joel is like, okay, things are obviously kind of falling apart here. Is Maggie going to be okay? And this is just like throwing pressure on Maggie. And also she feels the feeling of like, okay, now Maurice was a bad idea and now no one trusts me that I can do this on my own. Um, I don't understand like people, I think from the get-go, she was kind of surprised that um, Maurice's behavior was in a way, maybe indirectly suggesting very little faith. Uh, that he had of her, you know, being able to, to pull this off. And she's like, look, I fly a plane. I'm a damn good pilot. Like I know what I'm doing. Obviously it's not the same as building a plane, but I think that, um, her profession, her experience, her spirit is enough to be like, I can build this plane. People, You know, people make planes. There's a market. That's why they're selling these uh, home kits. You know, people can Mm -hmm. do this. So suggesting that Maggie is like out of her depth is a little insulting to her. Um, It does seem to be a little. uh, I'm sorry. We were talking about the scene where Joel is checking out. Maggie's progress. Uh, It seems a little concerning that Joel is pointing out, like, you know, sorry, I I know I'm not like a pilot, but isn't the engine on backwards or something? And Maggie's explaining, like, it's more efficient to push than to pull. And she says something about like center of gravity. Also, like, she finds like a random piece that she was like, huh, I thought this was supposed to go in the thing that I just built. Oh, well, it's probably like an extra or something. Mm -hmm. So this is all in front of Joel, and he's like getting. Concerned that um, you know this is, not, yeah. this is not, going off the way it's it should. not.
0: It's not inspiring yeah. a whole lot of confidence. Right. If Maggie <laughs> was doing this perfectly fine. Then I would say, like, Maggie does have uh, some some rights, some ground to stand on to be like, y'all just are not believing in me at all. Mm-hmm. And this is something which, like, it, it's hurtful and I'm taking this personally. But she is also, like, giving indications. So, like, <laughs> it is kind yeah, of odd. It does seem There's an extra parts
1: right we, there. Well, we do have the benefit of we've seen this episode and we know that in the end, the plane is perfectly fine and it works. And like, she built an amazing plane. So, you know, knowing that already looking at this scene, is this, uh, written to be sort of, um, a way of like misdirecting us and being like more suspicious of Maggie, like being more concerned? Mm-hmm. Is it for drama or I don't know what they're trying to say exactly. The, the idea that, uh, this, this scene seems to, as you said, uh, indicate, not inspire, but indicate that Maggie is not building this plane correctly. Uh, yeah. But I don't know what she's saying. Like, I don't know about the pushing and pulling and center of gravity. Maybe she has a point, but I don't know.
0: No, I think she has a point on that. I believe she's right on that. I just don't believe that it's right to leave extra parts. Like I've built enough, like yeah. little chairs and stuff, like <laughs> drawers and cabinets. I very rarely do I come out of those situations being like I had like a lot of extra screws. It's like <laughs> yeah. a lot of times I messed up if I had a lot of extra screws. I mean,
1: building a building like an IKEA thing. Sometimes, sometimes you do come out with extra stuff, but sometimes in the in, in you know in the manual, it's like there are no extra. Like you, you know, don't miss any pieces. I don't know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a really tricky one to navigate right here. Um, I think that what Joel says has an effect on Maggie because the next scene we see her is in Maurice's house. Mm-hmm. And Maurice is on a phone call with, uh, you know, some important uh, <laughs> old pilot the person. And Maggie is saying like, you know what? You're right. I don't have enough confidence in myself to finish out this plane. And then Maurice kind of does the most like uh, fatherly like just guidance figure that he can by mm-hmm. saying like, Maggie, it's just a plane. It's not like a stealth bomber. It's something you can buy from the internet or over the telephone. It's not a big deal. You can do it yourself. You don't need mm-hmm.
1: me. He says just go do it. Yeah. I freaking loved this scene because, I didn't remember fully exactly – I mean, I knew that they had – You know, I knew this episode before. I knew that they, like, had a falling out. I figured it would be so much easier for the episode just to be, like, Maurice is mad at Maggie and, like, intentionally sabotages her progress or, like, doesn't want to help her. But it's crazy and it's really interesting uh, that from this scene forward through the rest of the episode, Maurice isn't, like, mad that – um you know, Maggie didn't give him the control or whatever. He was excited to build this plane, but he doesn't really need, like, he doesn't want the plane for himself. Uh, At the end of the day, it is Maggie's thing. Like he just wanted to have fun. It didn't work out. And he recognizes that, you know, it's not, it's not going to be fun for him to build this plane with Maggie. So that's why he's not helping her. He's not like trying to um, sabotage her in any way. He's like, no, this isn't for me. Like we're not made to hang out Like, you've got this. Like, you don't need me anymore.
0: Right. They really bring that to fruition in the next scene where Maurice kind of says everything that you're saying right here. Mm -hmm. What's happening here is that he's in his wine cellar. He's trying to find a specific wine and Joel joins him downstairs. And Joel tries to reason with him. He says, like, you know, Maggie's working herself too hard. Please just, like, come back and help her out stop being so prideful stop thinking that you have an injured pride just swallow it and go help her and Murray says you think it's pride like it's not mm. pride that i'm not helping her it's because i'm old i don't <laughs> have to go in the plane anymore that's not up to me like you said like i was just doing this just for camaraderie just for fun it's not that like i have any uh I have any skin in the game for this plane. I just want to be down here on Earth, drink my wine, and have a good time. If Maggie wants to fly the plane, then she has to do it herself.
1: Yeah, I've got a little soundbite I'll play for this, for this moment.
0: I'm 62 years old, Joel. These reflexes and this ticker don't belong up there in some homemade. I've flown fighter missions. I've orbited the Earth. And now is the time to stay on terra firma. Reap the rewards of my labors not risk my neck in some ultralight. Risk your neck? Wait, you're meaning it's dangerous? <laughs> you're off the ground, buddy. I, I, I really, I don't get it. I, I, I'd love to know the point.
1: I mean, there are perfectly good planes out there. The woman has her own. Joel,
0: you've got to get into Maggie's head. You've got to go where she lives. She's a pilot, Joel. Can you think of any better way for a pilot to go than at the stick of an airplane?
1: Yeah. Also what I love about this scene is Joel goes there because he's worried about Maggie and he's trying to get Maurice to help. But the, (laughs) the reply that Maurice gives is like not, it doesn't assuage any of, uh, Joel's fears at all. He's basically like, this is dangerous. You're off the ground, buddy. Like this is such a dangerous pursuit. As you said, Charles, he's like, I'm an old guy. I just want to drink my wine and like hang out. But I think what adds that layer of complexity to the scene is Maurice being like, you got to get into her head, like that she is the pilot. Maurice is saying like, I'm not a pilot anymore. Like that was me back in the day, despite all my experience and all that engineering stuff. I don't have that spirit that I once had, which is what Maggie has right now. And um, it's really funny that You know, Maurice is saying how dangerous this is, and at the same time, Maurice doesn't seem worried at all. He knows that um, Maggie, you know, she has what it takes to to make this machine. She knows what it means to fly, you know, an aircraft. So she knows what she's going to have to be dealing with. Um, Putting this thing together is definitely difficult, but operating this plane, making sure it operates the way she needs it to, I think she knows how to do that. Um, that's not the end of the scene though. I think he talks about, do you remember this, this story he tells about like his friend who had like a son that was like a,
0: yeah, he, he was basically saying that like, you know, Maggie's a pilot through and through it's in her blood. And I used to know somebody who had a son that was also a pilot. And one day some fluke happened where his plane got taken down by like a bird in the turbine Yeah, and he just died just like that. And the father said it was as proud as day. That he ever had because his son went down like a pilot. Uh, I get the sentiment. Yeah. What he's saying is that like, you can't cage a bird forever. You got to let it fly. Maggie's a pilot. She's got to fly. Mm-hmm. You can't let her be afraid of flying. You got to just let her do it. I, 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 I get that. So in a way, you know, it's, a, it's an all right story, but it's still kind of messed up. It's a
1: strong <laughs> way to end the scene because I think it just ends with Joel being like, wait, what did you just tell me? Like, this doesn't help me at all. This is scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's the point. They like, you know, it's a funny way to end that scene uh, that also thematically important to this idea of uh, – Having that fighter, that flyer spirit, you know, right? Like that is your that is your life, that is your philosophy.
0: And we kind of see this play all out in the climax for Maggie's plotline. She's getting her plane checked out by a uh, certified person, and. She's kind of worrying about, she's like, oh, you know, I can redo these things. I, I know that I'm not perfect at soldering. And the guy gives her a perfect score. He's like, you passed. You did mm-hmm. it. It's perfectly fine. You don't have to worry. And then Maggie is met by Joel and she shares her excitement with them. And she's like, yeah, we did it. I'm going to go take the plane out for a ride to test it out. And Joel says, like, okay, well, like, I'll go with you. You know, this is what the boyfriend should do. This is what friends should do. They should help each other out. And Maggie takes this as an insult, not just on her, but also on her gender. She felt like, oh, like, you know, of course you feel like that. You feel like a man needs to step in to validate my life choices. And then Joel thankfully says, like, gender, like, what? This isn't anything to do with you being a woman. This is you doing entirely because we're friends. Yeah, let me play
1: the soundbite. It's a, f- I like, I like this scene uh, here. Yeah. Hey, uh... I'd like to go. What? That's right, I'd like to go. I mean, I, I believe me, I still think this is totally insane, but if anyone can do it, it would be you. Oh, I get it. What? A little male validation. Pin a rose on Mary Margaret, she did a very good job. I think a man should come along, right? No, man, a friend. Hey, I'm putting my only life in your hands here. Give me a break, will you?
2: You mean it, don't you? I mean it. Well why?
1: why? because this is you, you built this plane, and I want to fly in it.
2: Well, that's sweet flashman.
1: does there happen to be a parachute or something? <laughs> I think it's nice that Joel from that scene with Maurice that we just talked about, he took this he took this message to heart. It wasn't just like scaring him as it suggested you know the uh the flamingo and the turbine or whatever uh but yeah, it is funny, but also, um, perfectly on character for Maggie to get defensive there. And, you know, I'm glad that it was diffused quickly. Joel like, no, 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 this is about like, this is you. Like, I want to, I want to know this. Like, I want to experience
0: this. Like uh, this, I'm so proud of you. Yeah. I, uh, you know, at the end, Maggie says like, you don't have to come with me. In fact, don't come with me because (laughs) this is a, this is you. You're going to be a person that's not comfortable with flying. Mm-hmm. And I'm always going to be a person who is. So it goes back to that story that Maurice is saying. That are like, you know, you're a pilot if you're a pilot. If you're not a pilot, you're just not one. And mm-hmm. she's doing this line of demarcation between them. She's accepting for who people are. And she's acknowledging mm-hmm. that. So for like Maurice... She acknowledges, like, this is who Maurice is. He might be, like, a controlling individual. For Joel, he's always going to be, like, this person that wants to remain grounded. Wants the
1: parachute, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and for
0: her, she's going to want to fly. So she sees who people are really going to be at the end of the day. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it. You don't have to change it.
1: Yeah, it's nice because Joel can see through Maurice's, like, story and through talking with him and seeing Maggie build this plane – seeing her in this. And now Maggie can see, you know, like they they recognize that they don't always have to be on the same plane, you know, sorry, (laughs) no pun intended, on the same level. Uh, They don't always have to be there, but they recognize it in each other and respect that. And that's pretty nice. It's pretty mature and and cool to see. Uh, And that is a pretty sweet looking plane, I think, I'd say. (laughs) Uh, The last, I want to talk a little bit about the very last moment. It's like during the baptism. and you know it's kind of the end of the episode. you know, Randy gets baptized and everyone looks and it's like, oh, it's like a very calming music. and we see this image of Maggie's plane flying through the sky and they're like, wow, so beautiful. But I was uh, when I was watching this episode re-watching it, Charles, uh, you had just sent me a clip from the movie The Other Guys. <laughs> uh where uh mark uh wait crap what's this? mark walberg and the rock are chasing after a bunch of bandits they're like cops and uh the bandits like zip line from the roof down to the ground and then they cut the zip line so there's no way to get back down and mark wal or not mark Wahlberg? it's um the rock and uh samuel jackson samuel jackson they're chasing after these guys. So they need to get down to the ground level to catch these guys. The zip line's gone. And they say, you know what I'm thinking? Aim for the bushes. And they like leap off of the building with the song, there goes my hero playing in the background. It's like slow motion. <laughs> like they're skydiving onto, you know, to land on the ground. Uh, you can see uh, from the next shot, there's no bushes anywhere. They just fall straight on the ground and just <laughs> like that. go
0: right into the asphalt.
1: <laughs> but I was, uh, you sent me that clip when I was watching the scene and I was like, just imagining a scene of this where everyone's at the baptism, they see the plane, it's like serene and peaceful. But then we cut to the inside of the cockpit with Maggie and
0: there's like lights flashing and like sirens
1: <laughs> beeping. And the well, plane like crashes, it explodes. <laughs> it's, the way, sees.
0: it's funny you bring that up because the way it's shot, whenever Maggie takes <laughs> her plane out for that test drive, it almost, I don't know, is like it's the camera angle or what, but it seems like when the, the plane lifts off, it's going to, like, come back down immediately. Oh, it like crash into the ground,
1: feeling or something?
0: Yeah, it, it's the way it's shot <laughs> and, like, the way you're seeing it. Like, that's, like, a comedy angle where you're just like, all oh. right, something bad is about to happen. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because, like, in that same scene, like, uh, it, I think it intercuts to Mark Wahlberg's character and he's flipping out because he's not in that car chase. And he's like... You know, you, you guys got to let me fly. I'm a peacock. I have to yeah. fly. And he like freaks out. <laughs> He's also got flying imagery in there.
1: He kicks the uh, like water cooler and like throws everything around. Yeah. <laughs> got to rewatch that soon. But yeah, that's the end of uh, the Maggie plotline, I'd say, right?
0: Yeah, that's the ending of Maggie's plot line, And we go to the final plot line between Shelley, Father McCary, and Hollink. So the last time that we left off with them, Father McCary kind of had like his doubts about the uh, marriage between Shelley and Holling because Holling didn't practice any organized faith. Uh, when, I, when I saw that scene, I thought he was like talking about the age discrepancy. He was like, oh, that's the father. But instead, totally wasn't that. He was just looking at him being like, ah, he just doesn't have any, uh, have any religion inside of him. <laughs> So that's all that scene went. But yeah, the the next time that we see the father is him outside in the snow and he's greeted by Chris and Chris is saying like, oh, let me, let me join in. Like, I think this could be totally fun. Uh, like, I'm just like a regular guy. You got his license from the back of a Rolling Stones magazine, but you're the real <laughs> deal. You're from the Catholic church. I'm assuming that like based on the air date, this is like before 2001. <laughs> Wait, wait, what? From like, you know, when like the Boston Globe broke the huge uh, story. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: Spotlight, the movie Spotlight. Yeah. Gotcha. I was like trying to see what's going on. Um, yeah, Chris is here to assist in the baptism any way he can. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, this is actually one of those shots, Charles. We saw one in a recent episode where it's like, the scene doesn't cut. It just like continues like Chris basically is like, great, sounds good. Thanks, Father. And then like starts walking off before Father McCary can say much more. And he bumps past Ed and he's like, Ed, I'm going to be at the baptism. Hooray. And then the scene sort of now pivots to Ed who goes to talk to uh, Eugene. But it has a cool, that cool like, you know, it doesn't cut to the next scene. It just continues.
0: Right. That's really neat to look at. Uh, so Chris gets permission to go yeah, be his like alter hand boy just a sister <laughs> yeah. uh, and the next time we see them is back at the brick father mccary's eating and hauling uh it kind of keeps going mano mano with him mm-hmm. right there about organized religion and whether to have faith or not and shelly's kind of she's trying to get him off of that because it's an uncomfortable topic for her right. yeah but father mccary's uh, he's down for it. He says, like, I like to bait atheists. Like, I like to have, you know, a fun time against them. So they're having a great time. Holling's breaking up the booze. Mm-hmm. Father McCarthy doesn't have anything else to do for the rest of the day. So he partakes in it.
1: Right. Yeah. Shelly is obviously, she doesn't think that this, she thinks this can only be like bad because they are obviously not in agreement on religion. But as we can tell, Father, he's, he says, call me Father Kevin now. You know, Father Kevin, Father McCary is having a great time kicking it with uh, Hauling. He's done with work and wants to just drink and play cribbage, which to Shelley, uh, very surprising, as we find out later. This just isn't like the image of holiness for Shelley. But hey, that's what we're here to learn about with this plot line. Um, I, I did really like Holling's um, description of his. His sort of, uh, you know, spiritual beliefs, he describes himself as agnostic, not, not as an atheist. He says he's more Spencer than Kant, which I don't really, I'm not super familiar, but obviously some, some differing philosophies. But Holling uh, spells out that he believes in a God or whatever you'd call it. Um, he believes that this higher power is unknowable and it can't ever really be known. It's not that he doesn't believe that there is some other higher power out there, but that the idea that you would study and worship it is meaningless because it's supposed to be something we don't understand. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I definitely like that perspective. Um, and I think it fits perfectly for Hauling and uh, is a great conversation piece. I would imagine if I was uh Father McCary, I'd want to hear more about like what makes you feel like that or what, what do you connect with to that? So I definitely buy this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's interesting that Shelly's wearing like a white, uh, not like a coat, but like mm. a jacket of sorts. It, it, I think it's going to really come into play on the next scene, which she's also wearing a white coat. So I don't think it's coincidental that she's wearing white, the color of purity. It's just a, her idea is very black and white in what she believes holy men should do. Uh, And the scene that she's coming in and the scene that she's coming into is a scene where hauling and father McCary are arm wrestling and they're debating on both mental and physical capacities Mm -hmm. going at it. They're saying Mm -hmm. like, Oh no, like what about the wafer? Like (laughs) surely you should be able to tell if it truly goes to Jesus. And he's like, no, that's like, you, you think you're the first, idiot he's ever had that smart aleck <laughs> response so just going back and forth right there uh both of them kind of cheating in some way right there as as if to depict the like uh, n- no one way was like the true way mm, That's um, a good point. right there
1: yeah so uh sorry chris is like refereeing and he's pointing right. out like you gotta you know don't do this like keep your arm here i didn't i didn't notice that but uh yeah they're like physically kind of cheating and maybe suggesting that their uh their viewpoints are kind of uh that might not, you know, the full way. I don't know. Like they're kind of using other tactics or something.
0: Mm -hmm. Father eventually wins and puts in that final burst of energy right there. (laughs) And Shelly witnesses all this because she comes in to bring him some snacks. Sorry, I'm just (laughs) trying to remember
1: like when the father does win. Like I know he like rips his clothing. Does he like... rips his
0: pants. His
1: pants. Does he say something like when he delivers the final blow? I'm trying to remember if it's like... And Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> I can't remember, <laughs> but that would be awesome. See. I feel like he says something like that, where because there are, because that's what the whole scene is. They're like kind of arguing as they're fighting in a way, which is pretty cool.
0: He says, like, even you should know you can't test faith.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: but yeah, Shelly is entering here uh, now with like a chest full of snacks and she's gone from in the last scene surprised by Father um, McCary now to just being pretty mad about this whole situation. We can clearly see she's angry. I don't know if we mentioned, this is the distillery, like the still, the, um, the shack where I think uh Holling went and drank all that, like potato vodka or Chris did or something like that. Like we've mm-hmm. definitely heard mention of this and seen this before, but yeah, you just don't think about the the image of a priest, a saintly priest or whatever. Uh, you would not think of finding them in a ratty old shack that is, uh, designed just to like make booze, you know?
0: Right. And that's the problem that Shelly has with this entire situation that we see in the next scene where she's, they're getting ready to retire for the night and Shelly reveals to Holland to be like, I'm not happy with the way that you handled this with father McCary. Yeah. And Holly mm-hmm. says, I didn't like drag him out there. He wanted, he wanted to come out there. He, he did it on his own volition. He wants to go play cribbage and drink and arm wrestle. Uh, but Shelley counters and says like, I don't want to have to see that because the next day is the baptism. I want to have an idea that this person is a just man. He dots his eyes, crosses the T's. Mm-hmm. I don't want to imagine him as a human being. I want to imagine him as this messenger from God. Now that's a whole entirely different kettle of beans that they didn't Mm -hmm. touch on. Like the complexity of human, uh, you know, the complexity of being a human being and the multitudes that come with it. Mm -hmm. She was
1: touching. They kind of touch on that a little bit. They touch on it like a little bit,
0: but like that wasn't, that's not like the, right. I think that's that's not like the main focal point. The main focal point is like more on like just the way that she, she accepts Christ and mm-hmm. she believes that it's only like one way. Right.
1: Yeah, to me what I got from this uh, this conversation between Shelley and Halling uh this conflict here is that this idea Shelley wants to uphold this idea of holiness of sanctity this whole idea in the end is an illusion because it's not that's not the reality. Obviously we saw the reality. Uh it's not really how the world works. But uh I think what we get in response to this later is Father McCary, um, reaffirming Shelley and being like, look, just, you know, you'll see, uh, when it comes to the baptism, things will be right. But, um, I am getting ahead of myself, I guess. Do you want to talk about that? The next scene I think is, uh, Shelley going into confession.
0: Yeah. Uh, she rolls up to his, uh, <laughs> like his, I don't even know how to describe oh, it. Is it's this, like a trailer?
1: I was going to... I forgot. It's like a... Mo- is it a mobile? I totally yeah. forgot about
0: this. Yeah. It's like yeah, a mobile... It's one of those It's like a drive-by... Confessionals. Uh, I think it's hilarious that they always have these types of things. Right. Like the optometrist was on this type of mm-hmm. situation. The dentist was was like this. So it's like these people that travel from like town to town. <laughs> it's quite a living. I don't know if I yeah. could survive doing that. But you I know what? Actually,
1: I just want to say this real fast. Uh, we come from a small town, Lake Charles, you know, uh, Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but we never really had a long-term rabbi in Lake Charles for our synagogue. And we had all, like we had multiple different rabbis through my lifetime, but I think even at one point when, so I think when I was um, bar mitzvahed, the rabbi was, I want to say he's like living in Chicago and would fly down uh, and they would like put him up, you know, in in like a hotel here. I know he was from out of town. And then even currently now there is a, I believe the rabbi who's uh, serving Lake Charles serves a lot in the uh, Louisiana like, you know, mm. in Baton Rouge, I think he's originally, he lives in Baton Rouge and will travel to like Charles, maybe Lafayette as well. I'm not sure. So this is actually a thing today in our, <laughs> you know, for, for. Uh, I guess like Judaism isn't like huge in the South. It's definitely not small, um, but yeah, it's pretty, That's pretty interesting that this I think is a thing.
0: I, I'm coming at it with like a very archaic view, but I would think that like somehow that makes it like less... Holy, like, no, it like it feels like it's contract weird. work. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Like it feels like you should have a connection with the town. Right. You should have a relationship with them. So if it feels warm mm-hmm. whenever you get baptized or get bar mitzvah. But I will say, uh, but I do think that the rabbis, you know, who did, because they,
1: they weren't there for just like, you know, they were there for years. Yeah, they were there for know, a so paycheck. Yeah.
0: What's that? Yeah. They weren't there and for like, a
1: paycheck. You said they were or weren't? Weren't, weren't. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I think especially for this rabbi out of Baton Rouge, you know, he's not just serving Lake Charles, he's serving other, um, you know, other uh, congregations as well. So that might just be his sort of like religious duty, I think, as a rabbi. he's like, you know, there's not enough- That is true. There aren't enough rabbis in Louisiana. I've got to kind of, (laughs) this is my mission, I guess, to do. And he does like- you know, he does keep in touch with. Uh, like, I, I, would still get birthday phone calls from this rabbi. <laughs> you know, I like, don't hardly see. You know, I don't live in Lake Charles anymore. So, um,
0: but anyway, uh, sorry. Okay. Oh, the only the only relationship that I have with religion was that I lived next door to a Monsignor growing up, mm. and I remember thinking he was the nicest man, and he he honestly was. He was a very very nice man. Mm-hmm. He whenever we had knocked on his door. Because um, we were children, we, we you know, uh, we we didn't really know much. Uh, he would invite us in and give us candy bars, uh, <laughs> and we would just like run around and stuff like that. And not <laughs> once did he like sit us down and be like, "All right, let me teach you kids about like the words of Christ." Like he didn't like try to <laughs> try to influence us in that direction. He just knew we were kids. Yeah, he, you know, he was just like whatever. And mm. uh, I think like only once, like his house was like decorated in like paintings of Christ. It was a very like it felt like church when you mm-hmm. walked inside there. And he had like a walking closet that was uh sort of similar to this confession scene right here. Oh, okay. Like it was not a confession booth. But yeah, it but just it, felt like this. Yeah, it was like a very small, intimately lit. And I don't even know why he let us in there, to be honest. It, it was not to confess sins. not <laughs> to tell you that much. Um, playing around, kids. Yeah. No good. And uh that's really the only thing that I can think of off the top of my mind of any association with religion Mm -hmm. uh, growing up for me. But anyway, back to this scene, we see that Shelly is visiting Father McCary because she has to go to confession. It's been like three to four years. And she confesses to him that she's disappointed in him because in her eyes, she doesn't feel like he was acting appropriate. And Father McCary tells her like, well, nothing I did was a sin. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, entertainment in moderation is good for the soul. And... That's why I did those things. But I want you to know that like at the end of the day, I'm still a messenger of God. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna see it tomorrow, whenever I baptize your baby. There's gonna be like an air of holiness.
1: Yeah. There is something about religion and ceremony. And I think particularly this is like very much what Shelley loves about Catholicism is this ceremony, this tradition, this sanctity of the act uh, going to mass. Because when you're outside of the church, you know, there's real life. And then when you step into the church, it takes on like a whole other meaning. Like we can't always live our lives in a pew, you know, we have, we're human, but there's a moment that you try to transcend that maybe to reach holiness and going into a church, practicing these traditions, these ceremonies is in a way for some people, a way to get closer to God or to holiness. And I think that's what he's trying to point out is like, you know, like, I think you said, Charles, he's like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I am I'm a human and I am imperfect, but I am a messenger of God. And, you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to take this seriously. I'm not giving a baptism 24-7, but tomorrow during the baptism, you'll see it. You'll feel it. You'll feel God. And this is like, you know, this is a holy thing that we're going to embark on.
0: Right. I think it's uh, it's like the power of ritual. Yeah. It's like the understanding mm-hmm. that like it, there's some infrastructure in your life, you know, you know, and it's tied to a higher being in which you, you can't touch. And to Shelly, she doesn't want to be able to touch it. And it bothers her that mm-hmm. you can. Like she sees it with her own <laughs> eyes. Yeah. She sees the infallibility of it. So that's the thing that really hurts her. Uh, I think it's interesting that she walks into his place. She puts on a, I'm um, don't too so sure what to call it. Uh, it's like that white thing like on top shawl? of her head. It's like a yeah. shawl of sorts. Okay. Yeah. She wears that along with her white coat whenever mm-hmm. she goes to this confession. I have no idea if that's actually what you need to do for convention. confession. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe some way, somebody listening would be like, yeah, that's what you do, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know like uh,
1: in you know Judaism, you wear like the yarmulke or the kippah or whatever, the thing on your head. Yeah. You don't have to, but you know that's a way of showing. I was always told that that's a way of showing... Um, that there's always someone above you, like God is always above you. But I mean, not only just God, but like... That is... But I think it's also not just God. The way I was taught is like, it's a way of humbling yourself. Being yeah, like, that is a great metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's like you got a hat on your head. Something's above yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Yeah. I don't know why I never thought about that. <laughs> so that's what my grandma told me. I don't know the exact, you know, meaning of it, but I'm sure that's part of it. Um, anyway, I, I forgot... <sighs> So Shelly does confess this. That's the first thing she confesses to Father McCary. She says, um, I got purgatory for that, didn't I? <laughs> like, you know, that's her, <laughs> that's her penance. She has to go to purgatory now for some reason. But she does at the very end, they discuss this and they talk about it. She feels better maybe. But she's like, okay, I actually do have one other thing. I forgot to write it down. Do you remember what she says?
0: Yeah, somebody paid for their coffee order with a like a Liberty dime, that's which it, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm gathering that's not like uh tender currency. It's not like legal That <laughs> so, or it's like more it valuable
1: or something. It's like, you know, if I found like a uh, a wheat penny I'd be like, oh look, there's you you dropped your wheat penny or something. You know, it's, like, mm-hmm. it's just something like kind of a novelty that you wouldn't want to accidentally like if you paid with a two dollar bill, it's like, you sure you want to give me this? I don't know. Like anytime I get a two dollar anytime I get a two dollar bill, I'm like, wait, do you sure you this is a two dollar bill? Are you sure you want to give me this? And <laughs> it only it's only worth two dollars, but it's I don't know, it's fun. It's rare.
0: Right, right. Uh yeah, this brings us to pretty much the home stretch of the entire episode where they're in the woods, there's snow on the ground, so mm. and the sky is overcast, so it's completely white. get mm-hmm. a lot of white imagery for the baptism. I was not aware of this. I don't know if you know the answer to this. Can you... I, I thought you had to be in a church for a baptism. You can just do it anywhere? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, no,
1: I, here's the... Yeah, I know people... I know this from media that you could go get baptized in like uh, natural standing water, like lakes and things like that. So I don't think you need to be in a church. You could go out into nature and get baptized.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I had no idea about that. Yeah. Uh, They chose a very scenic location. It's right off of a cliff. Um, Mm -hmm. I think
1: we've seen this cliff. Like it's the one where Chris throws his Harley off and like, this is a familiar location.
0: Isn't it? There's an episode... I'm trying to recall. It might even be with the dentist. The dentist who's like,
1: did you come here to kill yourself?
0: Yeah. They don't say that
1: explicitly, but they're like, why are you here? It's like they're making sure that they might like both be coming to jump off or something, but it's not why.
0: Yeah. There we go right there. And uh, Father McCurry baptizes the child. He cleans him with holy water, which is really funny because there's Chris evokes the imagery of water in the beginning of the episode with the right, beaver and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's the cleansing device. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So you, you get a lot of like water imagery right there. And like I said, you get a lot of white imagery right here. So like mm-hmm. Shelly's dressed in white often, and everyone else isn't. They're dressed in other colors. So we know that Shelly is quote unquote pure. And we end with this shot of like snow on the ground and Maggie even heads off into the white clouds. So there's a, there's an idea of like restarting again, like spring, like a baptism of sorts.
1: Yeah. Great imagery, great color symbolism and the symbol of the water and ice. I didn't think about that, but that's pretty great. Cause we talk about, I mean, we played the, the baptism thing earlier, uh, for Ed's plot line, the idea that there's, uh. This, this sin in us that needs to be washed clean, like just by being human, uh, we we have this original sin that we must baptize. And the idea that water, you know, goes through this cycle of, I don't know, I'm trying to like draw that connection, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's really neat. It's a neat symbol. It's a neat uh, symbolism. I don't know if this is actually, I really don't know a lot about baptism. Obviously we don't, but it seems like what we played that soundbite earlier, um, was definitely tailored towards Ed, like being forgiven and repenting. But is that actually, that is what, is that what baptism is? It's like, as the father says, it's like cleaning ourselves of original sin. Um, Is that it? Or is like, is there other, I guess that's it, right? I guess that's it. That would make sense, I guess, why they would have a, a plot line outside of the baptism to deal with like feeling sin and learning like learning forgiveness. It starts with baptism maybe. With
0: repentance and everything. Mm -hmm. I I know you can get re baptized. I don't know what that's about. I don't Hmm. know if that's like is that what you just like you feel like it's it was too big for a confession? Oh. So you're just like, all right, I've got to like start, like really wipe the slate clean, go for the rebaptism. Wow, like,
1: <laughs> I actually didn't think about that. I was thinking of like if you, late in life, if you convert, then you get baptized. But if you oh. can get re you could get rebaptized. I've heard of that,
0: right? That's a thing, so. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like that thing where you're like, your computer is so bricked that you just go <laughs> for like, to wipe the white OS.
1: <laughs> uh, sorry, I knew we were going to have a lot of fun. I wasn't trying. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to religion, but we're we're obviously we're not um, Catholic, so we have a lot of. Fun I mean, no, like imagining. I know. We, we're so ignorant about it. So. Yeah,
0: incredible. Like I'm cracking jokes because I'm so ignorant about it. I <laughs> yeah. have absolutely no ill will. I mean, no disrespect yeah. <laughs> toward individuals that uh, <laughs> practice and follow faith.
1: <laughs> but I do like that uh, we can. We can also tie this into, I know it's the simplest, my least favorite storyline, but it ties into Ed learning about forgiveness, repenting, like you've, you've done something wrong. And even though it's not what you would um, rationally do, it just happens. You commit sin. So you have to be able to forgive yourself and let others, you know, ask for forgiveness from others. Um, And I'm glad we got that. I mean, it's pretty... straightforward as we said it's pretty cut and dry like Ruth Ann is like it's fine like I'm I'm teed off but it's going to be okay like you're forgiven so it's cut and dry but um i think it ties together nicely with the the whole imagery and idea and theme of rebirth and baptism forgiveness starting fresh in a, a spring break okay charles now is the point in our podcast where we invite on a guest our mission statement is to expand the reach of this show northern exposure by introducing the show to a new person one episode at a time so each episode we find someone who is uh, unfamiliar with the show or has never seen it uh, and get their thoughts and today Charles we are joined by my friend Riley. She is an amazingly talented artist also a filmmaker and um, yeah I've just been very curious to see what she would think about this episode. So without further ado let's hear what she has to say.
2: Hey. This is Riley. This was my first time watching Northern Exposure and the episode that I watched was called A Wing and a Prayer. I really loved the title before I even started watching. I found it very easy to fall into the world of the show. There was a really nice montage at the beginning where there were a bunch of moose, like you were in a small town and you knew you were in a small town and then there were moose crossing the street. Uh, I found all the characters to be really lovable. Relatable and quirky. I loved that the show was intergenerational. I thought the costumes were really nice. Specifically, Shelly had this baptism outfit with her little boots with the fur and her leggings and her fur coat and a little kerchief over her head. And there was this scene where she did confessional in this confessional trailer that was like really decked out and cool. And I resonated a lot with Maggie's character. In the episode, she was trying to build an airplane that she was going to fly in, and she was supposed to collaborate with this older man who had, like, been part of NASA, and he was going to help her, but he ended up just really, like, kind of overshadowing her and not giving her any, like, not letting her take any control and just watching her every move and double-checking everything she did, and she stood up to him and ended up building the plane herself and all the men just continued to like doubt her and worry about her if she could do it or not to the point where she really started doubting herself as well. And in the end, she ended up doing it and she like literally fly, like she, she proves to herself and and to the people around her that she she really can fly, she can soar. Um, so I loved that as a storyline. And then there was the drama of the this like sweet baby boy um, telling Ruthann's secret about her like love life, and then feeling a lot of remorse about that, and I thought the way that Ruthann responded was so beautiful. She basically was like, "I'm, I'm." He was like, "It's okay if you hate me," and she was like, "I don't hate you. I'm very mad at you, but I don't hate you." And yeah, she just had a lot of grace for him. And I think the episode was really about human failing and forgiveness. Yeah, I thought. It was beautiful because it was very simple and you just felt you were sort of in this small town and the problems of the characters were real problems, but they weren't high drama or anything. It was all just, you know, really simple and kind of precious for its simplicity, Um, but, but deep as well. I think I liked that for the concept of a show of just you have to be where you're at and with the people that you're with. And then the last scene was this really beautiful baptism scene which like you kind of leading up to it there's all these questions around faith and and what it means to be like a priest or someone who who is like in in faith and acting in faith and also is very human um and the last scene was of this baptism and it was like so gorgeous they were on the edge of this cliff looking over a valley and the woman flies by in her plane and everyone's there and there's snow on the ground. And it was just this beautiful scene, uh, this beautiful example of community. And yeah, I feel community is a really big part of the show. So I'm glad, I'm really glad I watched it. It was definitely, definitely inspiring. A lot to think about. All
1: right. That was Riley's thoughts on today's episode, A Wing and a Prayer. Thanks, Riley, for watching and giving your thoughts And just starting from the beginning of your, your comments there, uh, Riley points out obviously small town vibes with the opening title and the moose, but, uh, immediately just very lovable, relatable characters, she says, and pointing out the intergenerational aspect we have. Um, obviously we have this cast of characters that is, uh, you know, younger, older, But I think specifically in this episode, we get obviously a pairing of Maggie and Maurice, who we have sort of this older man and this woman. And then um, with Ruthann and Ed, another pairing in this episode, uh, older lady and a a much younger, uh, actually she says sweet baby boy is what she calls Ed later. (laughs) (laughs) But that is a good, uh, you know, that's a thing that you don't always see. I guess you always have to have, I don't know if you have to, but that is a good that is a good uh, formula to have in a show, you know, intergenerational.
0: Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a really good observation from her to notice that that me and you didn't even point it out whatsoever. <laughs> I think it's really uh, funny how some guests can really like all of the characters, including Joel, and mm-hmm. some people could like, just hate Joel, right? depending on what episode they watch. <laughs> like Whatever. Here's a, here's a like context.
1: Yeah, this has nothing to do with Riley's thoughts, but are there any characters... Besides Joel, that people hate, that guests hate. I'm trying to think. There's maybe Adam? One. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. There's definitely been uh, usually, you know, people are like pretty into the quirkiness of the show. Uh Joel can be pretty grating. He wasn't too bad in this episode, actually, because he was just there kind of supporting Maggie right. and being concerned for Maggie, I guess. Like not necessarily having enough faith in her, but uh just being concerned less than being like annoying and combative with her, you know?
0: Yeah. So I think that like, it, it's a good look for Joel, this episode. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> like, yeah, I really liked him it's better right, than right most, there. I guess
1: better than most, we can say.
0: She loved it because she felt it was really beautiful because it was simple, uh, mm-hmm. dealt with a small town with low drama, acting in mm-hmm. faith. And she put a lot of emphasis on the community right there. Uh, yeah. For this episode, which I can definitely see because it is one of those uh, episodes that has the townsfolk all come together at the end to go witness this baptism, right. even if they weren't like totally involved for the rest of the episode.
1: Yeah, we forgot to mention that. Uh, I think Father McCurry um, presents like an, an African, an old African proverb, he says, uh, at the at the baptism. Uh, the village raises the child. Oops, sorry. Also, my notes, I realized we didn't say Miranda Bliss. I, I think... I think whenever the baby is born, she's given the name Miranda Bliss, but that's the name she's baptized with. I don't know if we'd heard that before, could be wrong, but Miranda hmm. Bliss. I think Miranda's a good name for, um, for a character. So, yeah. I, th-
0: I think Miranda is too. Uh, I, I'm not totally in love with Randy.
1: Randy. Yeah. That's how they shorten it. Um, Miranda is, uh, I want to say, isn't it like Greek or something or like ancient, uh, mythology or something? Let's see. Because I want to say um, the name like MRI, like Mira or is like sort of Latin or romance language for like sight or seeing. Huh. Let's see. It is Latin meaning to be wondered at. There's a character in The Tempest called Miranda. Of course, it's the daughter of uh, Prospero, the magician mm-hmm. in The Tempest. I don't know why I thought it might have been uh, ancient Greek or something. I must just be thinking of The Tempest. But it is Uh, Latin, obviously. Uh, The verb mirror, to wonder at or to admire.
0: Ooh, that's really neat. I I had no idea about that. Yeah, I like that name. Um,
1: Sorry, more about Riley's uh, take on this episode. She said she really related to Maggie, appreciated that Maggie stands up to Maurice here and does sort of like, you know, end their partnership for building this plane. Um, But it's also, it is... You know, I guess this would be considered one of the main. I don't know if you consider this the A plot or if it would be the baptism, but regardless, it does have a bit of plot going on in it because we have Maggie on her own, um, standing up to Maurice and then beginning to doubt herself. And then in the end, she does succeed and uh, with like flying colors. You know, it's just such a beautiful. It's just, I don't know. Sometimes these endings of Northern Exposure episodes do have a lot of beauty. Like they hit the right images, the right words, it's all like the community, the text, and then the music too does a lot there. So it's a powerful ending.
0: Yeah. Like she says, uh, Maggie takes flight. She goes independent. She literally flies, Mm -hmm. you know, into the clouds and starting off anew, heading into the white. Mm -hmm. Uh, Riley also
1: points out just the idea that this episode deals with a lot of human failing and forgiveness, particularly talking about Ed I love that she pointed out Ruthanne's response to Ed, uh, forgiving him. Like she's she was very graceful. Riley says Ruthanne was very graceful to Ed, and I mean everyone in this show is like good friends, even when they're even when they're at each other's necks. Like everyone loves each other, which is you know some people might uh, criticize as a bit uh, idealistic for a show, but I think that's also why this show was so popular. That there is uh, a place. Uh, you know, that you can tune into and just see friends like hanging out, talking to each other about their feelings and getting along, you know, or (laughs) learning to get along better, you know, which is great. But yeah, I think you said it, Charles, that uh, Riley pointed out. It's like a simple, small town, real world problems, not any heightened drama, but still a lot of depth to it. Yeah. Thanks, Riley, for watching this episode once again, taking the time to... um. To record your thoughts. I'm really glad you enjoyed this episode uh, and connected to it so much. Uh, But, Charles, we're done for this episode. So, next week, we're going to come back and talk about the 21st episode in season five. It's called I Feel the Earth Move. Do you have any predictions for uh, what that title could mean? I Feel the Earth Move. I'm thinking of the song, the line from that, uh, (laughs) that, who's that? Um, Carol King. Uh, I'm thinking of that album cover too. Did you know that, sorry, this is off topic, but uh, the theme song for Gilmore Girls, I think is also on that album.
0: Wait, what? I didn't know
1: that. It's. I didn't realize that <laughs> until like after watching so many seasons of Gilmore Girls and being like, holy crap. And I think because I, I have this album on vinyl and it, maybe that's what happened. Like, So the album is uh, Tapestry. Let me make sure it's on this album because I feel like that's what happened. I was just listening to this album and then um, being like, wait, is this the Gilmore Girls theme song? <laughs> oh, but I think someone covered it is what happened. Oh, okay. That's why it doesn't sound like Carol King, but... Uh, what is the name of the song for the Gilmore Girls soundtrack? Where You Lead,
0: right? <laughs> I mean, that sounds about right. Because <laughs> yeah, it's in the song, right? Yeah, Where You Lead.
1: Yeah, so it's on that album. I remember listening to that uh, Carol King album with I Feel the Earth Move. Hmm. Anyway... Charles, we're to, we got to predict what's going to happen next episode. Do you
0: have any ideas? Oh, uh, that's a really hard one, man. I don't even know <laughs> where. I, I don't even know what song you're talking about. I want to be honest. Oh, I don't really? know what, yeah, no. Well, I don't I,
1: we couldn't play it, but you should listen to it right after we record. Uh, so, you know, don't worry about the song or the text of the song or the lyrics, but just the title, does that evoke any images of Sicily, uh, geographical occurrences,
0: I mean, it evokes a lot of images of like your worldview being shattered. Mm. Just something about like. More figurative, maybe. Taking yeah, like a seismic change within you I like is, is happening. And I'm going to guess it's happening within the story. I'm going to guess maybe Joel. That's, mm. Something happens to him. Yeah, I mean, he's the pr- protagonist, as we say. So, uh, well, we'll we'll talk about
1: it all next week, Charles. Once again, thanks for potting with me and uh, I'll catch you next time.
0: All right. I'll see you next time.
1: Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Riley for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.